All right. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. My name's Wade. I'm the pastor here. Last time I checked. And I lead an, a Bible study on Wednesday nights in addition to all the other things we have going on. And what we've been doing is we've been walking through the book of Psalms chapter by chapter. We've been at it for a while uh, because we take about one chapter per week. We've made it to Psalm 85. So we've been at it for over a year. And we're over halfway there. So excited about that. we got a great psalm tonight. You're going to be glad you came tonight. You're going to be glad you braved the elements and got out in the rain. You're going to be blessed by God's Word tonight. Really, really powerful and really needed passage that we're going uh, to look at. So look there with me in Psalm 85. Just by way of orientation, if maybe this is your first time here, uh, we have a lot going on on Wednesday nights. We have preschool ministry down right down that hallway. We have children's ministry upstairs uh, in this building behind me. Uh, we have student ministry. They're out there in the, the gym. They used to have a suite where they met, but they outgrew it. So now they're downstairs. So you may hear some basketballs bouncing or balloons popping or drums drumming. Uh, but those are, those are, that's like music to my ears. I love to hear the students in there uh, worshiping the Lord. And, and Derek does a great job leading them. But they're right through those doors in our worship center. And upstairs in the former youth suite, we now have our choir. They go up there and get ready for Sunday morning. Man, wasn't the choir awesome this past Sunday? Uh, man, it was so good. And, and uh, just love the way they point us to Jesus week after week after week. Do a great job. Travis does a great job with that. And so they get ready on Wednesday nights. There's some women's Bible study. Takes place on Wednesday nights. They're going right now, going through a wonderful study by John MacArthur. Uh, we have step studies with our Celebrate Recovery ministry that take place on Wednesday nights. That's men and women, different groups. And so there are a lot of things that happen on this campus. I mean, we're really running out of space on Wednesday nights. That's not supposed to happen, is it? Running out of space on Wednesday nights. Uh, but uh, that's just part of it. And we're, we're grateful that the Lord is blessing like he is. Uh, and we're glad you're here. Uh, by the way, just again, you may not know this, on Wednesday nights we do have a fellowship meal uh, from 5 to 6 approximately. Four, they start about 4.50 and go to maybe to about a quarter till or 10 till uh, 6. But they offer that every week. It's $5 a plate, no more than $20 a family. So if you're uh, able to come a little bit earlier, earlier next week right there through those doors in our big room, uh, you can grab a meal and, and feed your family, and that's available to you every week as well. And it's it's always delicious. Our kitchen ministry team does a great uh, job. So just be aware of that. Lots of things going on. Don't forget on Sunday mornings we have begun a study through the book of Galatians. We'll be in our third sermon this Sunday morning. So uh, be here for that. Excited about that. And lots of other things going on. So make sure you... Uh, look at our website, keep your bulletin close at hand so you can stay plugged in to all uh, that's happening. Psalm 85, Psalm 85. I've titled this um, teaching tonight, Revival, Revival, because that's what Psalm 85 is about. It is a, a chapter about um, revival. So we're going to jump in and look at that. But before we do that, I want to just give you a summary of the Psalms. The Psalms are 
150 chapters, or there are 150 psalms in the book of Psalms. And these chapters are actually hymns. They're songs that were written to be used in corporate worship among the people of Israel. So what you have here in the book of Psalms is actually a hymn book. And you say, well, what are these hymns about? Well, they're about the Lord. Uh, but to give you kind of more insight into the overall theme of the book of Psalms, there's a quote there in your notes from Kendall Easley. I've shared this with you every week. He says this theme is this, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion, in personal or community life. That's Dr. Kendall Easley. So he's saying the Psalms remind us that on mountaintops and in valleys, God's worthy of our praise. And on mountaintops and in valleys, whichever one you're on or in, God is worthy of our trust and confidence. You can trust him no matter what life brings your direction. And John Piper picks up on the fact that these are uh, songs, they are hymns, and he says the Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And maybe that's the reason the Psalms are so dearly loved, so popular, because when we read them, we resonate with the emotions we find in them. And we've made it to Psalm 85, and this is a psalm about revival. So let's read it together, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to jump right in working through this lesson. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Sons of Korah were uh, tasked with uh, overseeing things that happened there at the temple during the corporate gatherings of Israel. Verse 1 says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. And righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps a way. Let's pray together. Fathers, we study your word tonight. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts by your spirit that we might understand your word and understand it in such a way that we can take it and do something with it, that we can apply it to our lives. So God, just draw near to us tonight, encourage us, strengthen us. And Lord, not only uh, do I ask you to move in this room, I, I ask that you to move, to move all over this campus, all the different ministries happening in Jesus' name. God, I pray your hand of blessing would rest upon our church. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you. And we lift up this prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, undoubtedly you've heard today that the great evangelist Billy Graham uh, died uh, today, 99 years of age. He was almost 100. He passed away. He is now uh, with Jesus, with his 
um, wife who preceded him in death. Ruth, he's had a reunion with her, and he's with her in the presence of uh, his Savior, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful reality that is, a life well lived. Uh, no question in my mind he heard, well done, good and faithful servant. And you've heard a lot about Billy Graham. We'll hear more about him in the coming days. Uh, but I was thinking about this message on revival, and I was thinking about... Uh, you know, the theme of this chapter, and I was thinking about Billy Graham, and I was reminded of uh, his New York crusade. And I believe what happened in New York was a true revival, a true movement of God, and we need more of those things to happen. The New York crusade took place in 1957. It started on May 15th of that year, and it was held in uh, Madison Square Garden, that famed a place for sporting events and entertainment events, and that's where these revival meetings were held. It was originally scheduled for six weeks, which is a long time for religious meetings. You really never see that these days, but they had six weeks of meetings planned. Uh, Billy Graham had been thrust into uh, national and really worldwide prominence after the L.A. Crusades, and uh, he, his name was well known, and there's a lot of interest in his ministry and his his simple gospel preaching. And so uh, this New York crusade was well attended. It was so well attended that it continued on after six weeks. I mean, there's such a demand to hear the preaching of the word that it just kept going. You know how long the New York City crusade lasted? Sixteen weeks. Sixteen weeks. Think about that. Now think about it. Can you imagine that today in today's time? A preacher in some large arena for sixteen straight weeks with standing room only to hear a very simple, direct message about Jesus. Nothing flashy, nothing fancy, just preaching about Jesus. Sixteen weeks. Two million, listen to this. 2,397,400 people attended those meetings. And there were over 61,000 decisions for Christ. That was in 1957. That wasn't that long ago in the big scheme of things. It was a, a mighty movement of God. And we need more of that, don't we? We need that to happen again. And this, this psalm is a... Uh, is a, a testimony to that. It's a writer saying, Lord, we look back and we see how you have moved in great ways on behalf of your people, and we want you to do it again. We, we want to see you move like that again. That's what this psalm is all about. And so I want to pose for you and then answer from the text five questions concerning revival five questions concerning what revival is what it's all about and, and the text helps us to get to the bottom of what revival is so when we pray for revival we we know what we are praying for here's question number one what is it you've heard that term revival what, what do we mean when we say uh, revival uh, it was customary in years past where churches usually had a spring revival and a fall revival and it was usually a week-long series of meetings where an evangelist came in and maybe a music evangelist came in and that word revival came to mean meetings is that what revival is well it can happen in meetings but revival is not simply meeting together in some scheduled moment of the year 
So, so what is revival? Look what it says there in verse 4. Restore us again. The psalmist is asking for God to restore. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation. And then look in verse 6. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? What is the psalmist asking for here? He's asking for the Lord to do a fresh work in the lives of his people. Now, there's, there's... Different views as to what period in history this is referring to. Some people believe it's referring to the Babylonian captivity when God allowed the Babylonians to overthrow the Israelites and take thousands of them back to Babylon as slaves. And, and, and some scholars believe the Israelites here are saying, Lord, uh, you, you've shown us your judgment, your discipline. Now, will you, will you revive us? Will you restore us? Will you take us back to the homeland that we might be right with you and serve you and live for you. They're asking for God to do a fresh work. We don't know if that's exactly the historical situation, but we do know that God was sending judgment because look what he says there in verse 3. He says, you, verse 2, you forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sin, you withdraw your wrath, you turn from your hot anger, restore us again, O God of our salvation, put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? So God had done a work of judgment against his people because they had turned their back on him, and he was disciplining them. And the people were saying, oh, all right, Lord, we've learned our lesson. Now, would you, would you restore us? Would you revive us? Bring us out of this moment of, of indignation and smile on us again. Bless us again that we might live for you again. That's what they're asking for here. Now, I have some definitions of what revival is. Uh, Revival you see in the pages of Scripture, revival you see in church history. And I've got, I think, four definitions here for you that come from four different Christian writers. The first comes from the great theologian J.I. Packer. He writes, revival is God's quickening visitation of his people. It's when God shows up in an unusual way. His quickening visitation of his people, touching their hearts. When God shows up in revival, hearts will be touched. And, and when people meet God in revival, there's no question that God was there. Why? He touched hearts. Touching their hearts. I love this. Deepening his work of grace in their lives. Deepening his work of grace in their lives. When, when, when hearts are touched and God deepens his grace in, in his people's lives, you know revival has happened. Stephen Olford, great preacher, writes this. Revival is the sovereign act of God. In other words, it's God moving when he chooses to move. In which he restores his own backsliding people to repentance. And so it's when he gets his people's attention, they turn from their wrong ways back to God. And they're fully engaged in serving him. He, he restores his own backsliding people to repentance, faith and obedience. I, think, I believe that definition really captures what Psalm 85 is about. Robert Coleman writes this. He wrote the book Master Plan of Evangelism, a classic in Christendom. Uh, I had an opportunity to spend uh, a couple of days with Robert Coleman with a cohort of students in my doctoral work at Southern Seminary. And uh, he's this um, older uh, uh, saint, scholar, and he just just spent time just talking to us about the Lord and about the kingdom. It was incredible. But he writes this, Revival is the awakening or quickening of God's people to their true nature and purpose. The awakening or quickening... Second time we've seen the word quickening, an immediate work of God, to awaken them to their true nature and purpose. 
And then I love this revival, this revival definition from Duncan Campbell. Revival is a community saturated with God. A community saturated with God. How do you know if a group of people, a community, a nation, how do you know if it's having revival? When that community is saturated with God. I would say over 2 million people attending sermons about Jesus and, and over 61,000 getting saved, that's, that's saturation. Wouldn't you say that? That's, that's a, a mighty movement of God. And so what is revival? It's all these things. It's God restoring. It's God reviving his people, turning them back from their backsliding to him that they might live fully for his glory. That is revival. Now, our nation has had many prolonged periods of, or some prolonged periods of revival. You've probably heard of the First Great Awakening in the 1700s. There was the Second Great Awakening of the uh, 1800s. There was the Prayer Revival of 1857 in New York City. Uh, Jeremiah Lynn Fear was used of God for that. Uh, there was uh, a movement, and part of the most recent awakening in our nation was in the late 60s, early 70s, the Jesus Movement. If you're familiar with that, uh, that terminology, the Jesus Movement. In fact, many of the leaders in Christianity today were saved during that movement of God. It was a, a true revival. A lot of young people were getting saved, and and, uh, and a lot of them were, were coming out of like the, the hippie lifestyle, and, and they weren't wearing shoes, and, and they'd come in churches and sit on the floor, and churches say, what in the world's going on? And, and they were getting saved, and, and lives were being changed, the Jesus movement. By the way, if you want to watch a good movie about that, there's a movie called Woodlawn. It's a football movie, and we like, we like sports movies. And it's, it's a football movie, but the setting is the Jesus movement and how God uh, changed a, a high school football team uh, and a college football team. And it's about how racial barriers were broken down because the gospel of Jesus Christ in Birmingham, Alabama. It's a really good, uh, really good uh, movie. Bear Bryant's in it, if for you Alabama fans or an actor playing Bear Bryant, is in it. So uh, it's called Woodlawn. But, but the setting of that movie is the Jesus movement. It's how God was, was moving uh, with power during that uh, time. That was probably the last time we saw a, a stirring or awakening for a prolonged period of time in our nation. I would say we're due. What, what about you? Would, you? would you say we're due for a Another movement of God. I mean, look at what's happening in our society. I mean, it's, it's, it's frightening what is going on all around us, and we need God to move again. So th that's kind of a, an overview of what we mean when we use the word revival. It's a, a quickening, an awakening, a turning of, God, of God's people back to him, that they might be serious and saturated with him. Now, here's the next question. When do we need revival? When do we need revival? All the time. But there's some answers to this question found here in Psalm 85. Uh, first of all, we need revival when we have drifted away from the Lord. Look what it says in verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Uh, I'm sorry, that's Psalm 84. Psalm 85, verse 4. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? We prolong your anger to all generations. So apparently, again, what's happened? God's people had disobeyed him, rebelled against him, walked away from him, turned their back to him. So God's judging them, at, listen to this, as an act of grace to get their attention so that they'll turn back to him. 
One of the most frightening things God could do is just leave us alone when we're going the wrong direction. Right? That'd be frightening. But he loves enough to discipline us, to get our attention, so we'll go back the right direction. So when we have drifted away from the Lord, uh, when we experience his indignation or his discipline in our lives, we know it's time for revival. And that's the next phrase, when we are undergoing his discipline. It says there, uh, put away your indignation toward us. So that's when we need revival, when we have drifted, we're straying from the Lord. Now, here's what happens with, with a church, individual Christians and a, and a church family. No one gets up in the morning and says, if they're Christian, no one gets up in the morning and says, I want to drift away from God today. Right? I, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I, I want to be lukewarm today. That's what I want to be. I want to be lukewarm in my faith. No one wakes up thinking that, do they? No. What happens is life just gets filled up with stuff and busyness and chaos and crisis and trouble and trial. And before we know it, our priorities have shifted. And, and instead of seeking God first in all the different areas and avenues of life, we're, we're trying to juggle life without Him. And, and over time, maybe a series of small steps, small compromises, small movements away from God, we find ourselves far from God. And it's like, how did I get here, right? How did I get here? And it can happen in an individual's life. It can happen in a family. It can happen in a church family. It can happen in a nation. And, and when we find that we are far from God, it's time to ask God for revival, right? Someone gave me a little uh, picture years ago, and it says on there, ask this question. If you're far away from God, guess who moved? Good question, isn't it? God loves you perfectly. He desires intimacy and fellowship with you. He didn't move. Who moved? You did, right? If you feel far away from God, guess who moved? And so revival is when we realize, hey, I'm not close to God. My life is not saturated with God. My life is not focused upon the Lord. It's all about me, not about Him. I need revival. That's when we need revival. And so... When do we need it? We've drifted when we're undergoing his discipline. Number three, what does revival look like? How do you know if revival has come? How do you know if, if God is moving in awakening and quickening? What does revival look like? Let me give you some thoughts about that. And this comes straight from the text. First of all, people find their joy in the Lord. Again, look what it says in verse 5. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us? Again, verse 6, that your people may rejoice in you. Isn't that interesting? The first characteristic of revival is when God moves, when God draws you back to himself, when God does an awakening work, a stirring work in your heart, the first result is joy. You recapture the joy of your salvation, the joy of knowing God, the joy of serving God, the joy of of living for the Lord, the joy of having a rightly ordered life. There's joy in that. The joy that comes from knowing that, that God is number one in your life. People find their joy in the Lord. Again, over in Psalm 51, David prays a prayer of repentance. It was after David had committed adultery and murder to cover up his adultery. Serious sins. And remember, he was called a man after God's own heart. And yet he broke... Uh, three of the Ten Commandments, that one episode, he, he committed adultery. That's, uh, no, what, number, uh, number six. 
uh, and then or number seven, and he uh, murdered. Uh, that's number six, right? And then he lied to cover it up. That's what? That's number eight. Isn't that right? Six, seven, eight, something like that. But I may have those wrong order, but he, he disobeyed three of the Ten Commandments. And in Psalm 51, he is, he is praying this prayer of repentance. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Clean up my heart. And then he says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because listen, when you have unconfessed sin in your life, it makes you miserable. Right? Unconfessed sin. When you're far from God and you know it, you're miserable. So he's saying, Give me back the joy of my salvation. Which, by the way, listen to this. I believe the most miserable people on the planet are not lost people. And I believe they're not finding their true fulfillment and joy and peace that could be found in Christ. But a lot of times, lost people don't even know it. They're just chasing after things because they're lost. That's what lost people do. I believe the most miserable people on the planet are saved people that know better. And they're far from God, and they're, they've got conviction in their life because they know they're far from God, and they're miserable. When God stirs our heart, when we get right with Him, when we make Him number one in our lives, anew and afresh, joy is restored. People find their joy in the Lord again. One of the sure marks of revival is a joyous people, a joyous people. Number two, people begin to hunger for and submit to God's Word. Look what it says in verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is for those who fear him. Let me hear what the Lord God will speak. In other words, they're saying here, God, as you revive us, we, we want to know what you say. We want to we hear your word. We want to respond to your word. We, we've been living our lives long enough not responding, not listening, turning a, a deaf ear to your truth. And so, God, we want to hear your word. And one of the sure signs of revival is when people begin to hunger for and submit to God's word. That's when a six-week meeting goes 16 weeks. Right? People want to people wanna hear God's word. And there was a time in, uh, in Southern Baptist life where churches would have week-long revival meetings. They'd go two weeks or three weeks. They didn't want to stop because of the work God was doing. I wonder in the, in the crazy pace at which we live today if that would ever happen again. Where we would be so hungry for God, we're willing to clear the calendar for two weeks, three weeks, and just say, I'll be here every night to hear the Word of God. Can you imagine what that would be like? And again, that's not something you manufacture. I'm not going to say, hey, we're going to have a three-week revival meeting starting tomorrow. No, that, that, that's when God's at work. It's, it's evident that people are, are hungry for the Word, right? It's evident. And so when revival comes, people begin to hunger for and submit to God's word. Number three, people begin to fear God again. Look in verse 9. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And so people begin to fear God when God restores, when God turns, when God revives. There's a, there's a, a new awareness of the Lord, a new fear for the Lord. And, and by the way, fear, uh, fearing God is not terror. In the, in, the, in the sense of the way fear is often used, it's, a, it's an awe and a reverence and a respect for God based upon your relationship with God. That's what fear is. 
Um, we don't have terror because our sins have been forgiven in Christ, right? We have a relationship with God. But we fear Him because He's God and we're not. We have reverence and respect for Him. And, and we, we want Him to be uh, number one in our lives. Uh, I heard this from Adrian Rogers recently on listening to him on the radio. He said, fear or the fear of God is love on its knees. I thought, that's, that's it. I can't say it any better than that. Fear of God is love on its knees. People that love God but are, are in awe of God, they're on their knees before God. And when revival comes, there will be a new reverence for the Lord and the things of the Lord that sweep across God's people. Next, what's revival look like? God draws near in presence and power. Look in verse 9. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. In other words, God will draw near in such a way that, that we'll see his, his glory, his work. And, and then you look at these characteristics rising up. Love, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. And so um, among the people of God, there's, there's love and there's faithfulness. Righteousness looks down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good. He'll bless. He'll pour out blessings. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. So when God draws near with his blessing, there's, there's love and there's righteousness and there's faithfulness and there's God's hand of blessing. And, and it's just no, no question that God is at work, that God has placed his hand upon a person, a family, a group of people. God draws near in presence and power. And that's what we want, right? That's what revival is. We want God to just draw near. Now, there's a sense in which God is always present. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He said, I'm with you even to the end of the age. And so if you're a Christian, God is present in your life and that'll never change. There's, a, there's an unfailing presence of God for the Christian. That's good news, right? But there are times in the Bible where God manifests his presence. In other words, he, he makes people to feel his presence in a very special way. Is over and above just his daily presence in our lives. This is a, a special manifestation of the presence and power and glory of God where there's no doubt we have been in the presence of God. He's been moving in our midst in a special way. So let me show you this. Turn to, turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. The context here is... Eli was the high priest of Israel. His sons were wicked. They were priests as well, but they were wicked. Disobeying God's law, committing immorality. They were wicked. And the people of Israel go into war. Uh, with the Philistines into a war, and they take the Ark of the Covenant with them, and think, we have the Ark with us, then surely God will give us victory. Well, they were living in disobedience to the Lord, so the God was not prospering them with His power and strength. In fact, the Philistines won the battle. And look what happens in verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle at line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came to the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and he told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, 
I'm he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. In other words, the Philistines have, have beaten the Israelites. There's been a, a great defeat among the people, but it gets worse. Look what he says next. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. But it gets worse. Look what he says next. And the ark of God has been captured. Ark of the covenant symbolizing the presence of power of God among his people was captured by the Philistines. And it says, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. Remember, her husband had just died in battle. And it says, When she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth. It, it sent her body into contractions, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not, pay, pay, uh, did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child, watch this, Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. The word Ichabod means the glory is gone. The glory is departed. So she names her son uh, Ichabod. Why? Because she recognized that God's presence was not with his people. They were, they were so backslidden, so wicked that God walked away from them. God, God moved away from them with his presence and power and strength and and, and they were defeated, and they lost the ark, and it was a terrible time. The glory of God, the presence of God was gone. So you got that Ichabod. Now, keep that in mind, and turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. Let me show you the contrast. First Kings chapter eight. Let's look in verse five. It says King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, so that they had the ark back at this time, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. They're worshiping the Lord. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim and for the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. They could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There is nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. When the priests came out of the holy place, watch this, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. For Samuel, God's glory departing, right? God's judgment, discipline among his people. First Kings 8, God's glory filling the house. That's revival. God drawing near with his, with his unmistakable presence and Great power. That's what revival looks like. Now, wouldn't you want to be a part of something like that? Joy 
hunger for the Word, fearing God, God showing His power in in marvelous ways among His people, manifesting His presence. When you want to be something, a part of something like that, that's what revival is. Which leads to the fourth question. The fourth question is, why should we respect or why should we expect revival? Do we, do we have any reason to expect that revival could happen again? Well, I think we do. And let me give you two reasons we should accept, expect revival. Number one, God is ready to forgive. When his people backslide, God is ready to forgive. Look what it says back in Psalm 85, verse 1. Psalm 85, verse 1. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. What's he saying there? The psalmist is looking back at other times God had judged Israel. Other times God had disciplined his people. And the psalmist says, you know what, I look back and I see times that you forgave us and restored us. Times you revived us. So here's what the psalmist is saying. Now watch this. The psalmist is saying, if you did it in the past, we have every reason to believe you can do it again. Right? That's what he's saying. If you did it in the past, we have every reason to believe you can do it again. If there was a, a first great awakening and a, a second great awakening, we have every reason to believe that God could send a third great awakening, right? And sweep tens of thousands into the kingdom by his mighty movement. And so God is ready to forgive. John Calvin, in commenting on this verse, writes this, Nothing contributes more effectually to encourage us to come to the throne of grace than the remembrance of God's former benefits. Our faith would immediately succumb under adversity, and sorrow would choke our hearts were we not taught to believe from the experience of the past that he is inclined compassionately to hear the prayers of his servants. In other words, if we didn't believe there's any hope, we'd have no reason to pray, no reason to expect, no reason to plead for revival. We'd just say, we're too far gone, the nation's too far gone, this is how it's going to be. Let's just throw in the towel. But when we look back and see God's past faithfulness, it gives us strength to pray for revival in the here and now. Everybody see that? If God did it in the past, He can do it again. So God is ready to forgive. God loves to restore backsliders. He loves to do that. Which leads me to the next point. Why should we expect revival? He's the God of many chances. You've heard the statement that God's the God of a second chance. Well, he's the God of a lot more chances than that. I don't know about you, but I've needed more than two. How about anybody else in here need more than two? I've, I've, I've gone way past two, all right? He, he's the God of, of many chances. Look in verse 3. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again. That word again is so important. Do it again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Give us another chance like you did in the past. Lord, take away your wrath and, and restore us again. Give us another chance. George Morrison writes, The victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Which, by the way, is a good definition of revival. It's a new beginning. A new beginning. So why should we have any reason to expect revival? God loves to revive. He loves to forgive backsliders. He loves to restore folks. He loves to give 
many chances. That's what God does. That's what God's all about. He's a God of grace and mercy and love. We're to take him seriously. and He'll discipline us if we run away from him. But, but listen, if we'll turn back to him, and by the way, the, the dominant word is translated different ways in the English, but the dominant word through uh, this psalm in the Hebrew is the word turn. She's used four or five different times. Turn, turn, turn. And the, the point is this. If we'll turn to him, he'll turn to us with favor and blessing and power and presence. So we can't expect revival. Which leads to the fifth question. What is revival? When do we need revival? What does revival look like? Why should we expect revival? And five, what should we do? In response to a passage like this, what should we do? Well, I mean, what should the folks in this room do? What should, what should Longview Point do? What should American Christianity do? Well, I mean, what should we do in, in response to all of this truth in Psalm 85? Well, very simply, we should seek God and ask for revival. We should seek God and ask for revival. Verse 6, will you not revive us? There's that word again word again will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you god would would you send revival we've backslidden just like in times past but we're asking you to restore us we're asking you to revive us we're asking you to do a mighty work warren wearsby writes when we turn back to god repent and confess our sins he turns back to us and restores us warren wearsby so we should seek god and ask for revival. I heard this years ago, and I looked it up. It originated with an English evangelist named uh, Gypsy Smith. And he was talking about praying for revival. And here's what Gypsy Smith said. He said, you ought to get a piece of chalk. And he said, you ought to draw a circle on the ground. And you ought to stand in the circle and say, Lord, send Revival. And let it begin in this circle. Let it begin in this circle. And I believe if we have some folks that are serious about revival starting in the circle, revival starting in their own individual life, that there's potential for the fire of God's Spirit to sweep across bodies of believers like the point, and across communities, and across a nation, and across the world. And bring great awakening. The potential's there. God's done it in the past. Why wouldn't he do it again? Listen, as long as God is still on his throne, and he is, revival is possible. Amen? And we should seek God, and we should ask for revival. And so, you say, wait, what should I do? Draw a circle or envision a circle and say, God, send revival in this circle. And pray for your church and, and, and pray for your community and, and pray for your nation and pray for God to move with power. That's what we should. That's what Psalm 85 ought to do in our lives. A great. And by the way, you can just take these, this psalm and just, just pray it to God and make it your own prayer to the Lord. Will you not revive us again?